Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. We are literally days away from the official beginning of the school year here in the Carolinas. And as we close out on a very long, hot summer in the Carolinas, what are those things that continue to percolate? I'm Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and longest running source of Carolina business policy and public affairs seen every week across North and South Carolina. In a moment, we will welcome our guest, the CEO of UNC Health, Dr. Wesley Burks. Before we do that, our panel of experts will unpack the issues of the day and we start right now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Kevin J. Price from the National Institute of Minority Economic Development, Joe Waters from Capita, and special guest, Dr. Wesley Burks, CEO of UNC Health and Dean of the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Well, welcome again to our program. It has been a long, hot summer for sure. Uh, maybe not for you, Joe Waters, up in Blowing Rock, but I know for Kevin and I down here in the low, lower country, it's been just steaming. Uh, Kevin, let me start with you. So here we have a long, hot summer. We've had uh, not runaway inflation, but record inflation. We've, we are now officially in a recession. Um, have we reached tipping point? Kevin, what are you hearing in your conversations with constituents and people that you know? Well, uh, Chris, thank you for inviting me. This is great. Uh, so glad to be here and spend some time with you and Joe. Uh, I think what I'm hearing a lot uh, these days is that we've been here before. Um, and for minority populations in particular, uh, minority business owners, we've experienced this many times before. And so it's how do we weather the storm? Uh, we've gotten some relief from the federal government in terms of PPP and things like that that are out there uh, that I think gave, gave some early relief through the pandemic. Now the state is responding and saying we have to do more to support uh, minority and women-owned businesses in particular across the state. And we've been administering that to support them uh, for the last two years. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm excited about that and where that's going. Uh, but I'm now thinking of how do we scale businesses and get them to start to think about growth again. Um, and the VC world is somewhat contracting a little bit. Uh, so I'm a little concerned about that. This venture cap, you said venture capital specifically? Right, right. venture capital. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's what I'm seeing right now is we've got to continue to make capital available uh, and resources available so we can weather the storm. Joe, I mean, 
Joe, as Kevin just said, here we are. We're in it. We've seen it before. It, the sky isn't falling. You know, it's not, it's not quite the media hype that we, we hear about. Or is it? I mean, what do you hear? Well, I think uh, inflation is a very real issue for working families, right? Uh, despite the fact that we have great employment numbers, uh, wage growth is not keeping up with inflation. So people are really feeling the pinch of what's happening right now in the economy. And certainly that takes a toll on lower income families who have to spend a disproportionate amount of their income on housing, which we know is not affordable in many places across the Carolinas, on childcare and other essential goods that frankly over the last several decades have only gotten more expensive. Okay, You're, you both raise the red flag about communities of color, people of color, disproportionate impact, absolutely. What do we do with it? Kevin, you, you talked about support. Specifically, what does support look like and how does, how does it change the dynamic? Well, well, I think from the perspective that Joe raised of just working families, uh, many are thinking about how do I go back to school and retool, rethink mm -hmm. about skills that are available to me. The community colleges have been doing just a fantastic job of making resources, making educational opportunities available so people can go back to school. Uh, we're seeing a, an amazing surge of companies come into North Carolina, but they're coming in with a different set of skills that they're looking for. And so I think as we retool those who live in the community now, um, somewhat away from manufacturing to look at technology and other types of jobs where you need a little bit of a different skill set, uh, the community colleges are helping a lot in that space. Joe, South Carolina schools start, public schools start a week or two before North Carolina schools. And as we start, as we get back to school, is there a particular part of that that puts families and kids at risk now that we've got what we just laid out around the economy? Well, I, you know, I think that that's an interesting question. I mean, certainly families are spending, uh, particularly uh, families with younger children, they're spending a disproportionate amount of their income on childcare. And when you look at the beginning of school, that's certainly a relief for many of those families. But if you need to work for full day or you need to work second or third shift, that doesn't help you, right? And so they're going to be looking at expenses around after school care and those sorts of things. In addition to all the stuff that kids want and need, uh, and you need to buy for them when they're going back to school. So, yeah, I mean, I think in many, many respects, going back to school is, is uh, certainly an exciting time for many kids and many families. But obviously, obviously there are going to be some stressors this year uh, related to the economy in particular and the yeah, prices. Kevin? Kevin, what do you think? Well, I, I am seeing the community colleges respond to that as well. Uh, for those who, those adults, the parents who are trying to also go back to school, part of the impediment of doing that has been childcare. How do, where do I take my kids? Where do they go? And those sorts of things. So many schools are responding to that as well, uh, saying we can, we can support you in that space also. So I'm excited about that and how, you know, for the first time, I think, well, maybe not the first time, maybe in our lifetimes the first time, we're starting to see people think way outside the box. And yeah, let me just. This is the way it's always been. So that's the way we've always got to do it. We can do things differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to add on to that, I think you're absolutely right, particularly when you look at the number of students around the country. I think it's something like one in five college students are also actively parenting a young child. 
And they need support to help to make sure that they get to degree completion with some of those childcare costs. And, and I think a lot of schools around the country are really stepping up to support those student parents to make sure that they can finish their degree. The last time our guest was on this program, it was literally a week before this novel coronavirus, COVID-19 appeared. It was also before Roe v. Wade reversal. It was also before the accelerated M&A activity in hospitals across the Carolinas. It was also before the acute increase in scrutiny around healthcare billing and costs, as well as the shortage of nursing and staff. So not a few things have happened. He is the CEO of the UNC Health. He is the Dean of the UNC School of Medicine and the Vice Chancellor for Medical Affairs at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We welcome back Dr. Wesley Burks. Uh, Dr. Burks, um, God bless you. You've got a lot on your plate, sir. Well, Chris, first, thanks for the opportunity to be with you. I distinctly remember March of 2020 as we got together and talked about COVID and what we knew and what we thought we knew. Uh, I'm not sure any of us could have predicted what would have happened. The last two years have seemed like 20, honestly, for most of us. And it's been interesting, amazing, exhausting, and exhilarating. There's so many different ways to describe it. But I'm glad we're in a position we are right now. And not to, not to be too cute and too, too much of a turn of phrase, sir, but so how do you triage all of those things that have happened since then? How do you prioritize what's important and where do you start and what do you manage first? First, you have to be really clear about what your mission is and what your priorities are. So our mission is to promote the health and the well-being of the people in North Carolina. And we literally talk about it every day. And then what COVID did was to make us refine within that what our priorities were. And the two priorities were, one, to take our best care of patients that have COVID and then everything else, and then take care of each other. And so with those filters, that's how we made the decisions about what to do, when to do. We did things that we never would have predicted, but with those filters, those priorities in mind and a process, then we got there. We did, we took care of a lot more patients than we ever thought we could. We worked under conditions that were thought to be unbelievable previously. And people are tired right now, but they did it. They, they did an amazing job. Okay, Joe. Um... Kevin? Yeah, Dr. Burks, thanks so much. It's good to meet you and good to talk with you today. We've heard a lot over the last decade plus about the importance of the primary care workforce across North and South Carolina. We've seen initiatives like the new medical school in Greenville, South Carolina, new residency programs like the one in Boone that Mayhack is sponsoring. How are you thinking about encouraging med students very early in their training to think about primary care professions rather than specialties? particularly when, frankly, the economics with student debt and everything else make those specialties very attractive? So it's a really good question. And for our medical school and for the state, you understand better than most the importance of primary care and having good care throughout the state, not only in the urban areas, but particularly in the rural areas. So as we recruit medical students to UNC, then one of the filters, the thoughts that we have is how do we recruit more students that are likely to go back to rural areas or likely to practice primary care? And the two things that really play a part in that are where they're from and their heart for doing primary care. And as we think about how we recruit into our medical school, that's a big part of what we're trying to do. The other part of this is that what really 
best correlates with where people practice is their ultimate site of training, not where they went to medical school as much. So for us as a state to develop more residency programs, particularly in rural areas, people that train in rural areas that are from North Carolina, that's who will stay there. And so us with others like Mayhek, other parts of the AHEC system throughout the state to emphasize more training places for after medical school in rural areas, that's how we'll replenish that workforce. Mm -hmm. Kevin? Dr. Burke, uh, it's good to see you. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I'd spent 14 years with North London. When I was there, part of what we used to talk about quite a bit was triple aim and how triple aim is designed to improve the patient experience, uh, reduce per capita cost, and then population health. But what I've been hearing lately is that the triple aim has become the quadruple aim. And that is adding those triple aim elements and one more, uh, that being more of a employee satisfaction or some have said joy, others have said health equity. Has that helped with retention and recruitment and just the overall mental well-being of team members? So it's, it's a really good question. We talked earlier about the two people that we really focused on. One is our patient, the people that we want to participate in their healthcare. And the second one is my teammate, the people that I work with. And to really focus on them, that's part of that now quadruple aim. We've had programs in place for several years now around wellness for the physicians and the nurses and other people that I work with, putting a lot of resources there. We can't take care of others. We can't meet our mission unless we're taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other. And that's a big deal. Embedded in that question is that we are a diverse group of people that we work together. That's how we'll best meet our mission of taking care of the people in North Carolina, rural, urban, all the different zip codes that we want to participate in their health care. We have to pay attention to the people that we work with to help them feel good, help them work through, uh, again, what's happened, in, particularly in the last 28 months. You know, Dr. Burks, as I, as I hear you talk about, the, not just, and Kevin brought up the triple aim and quadruple aim, and as you address that, I still think about being reactive and proactive to some degree, but being reactive to these things that pre present a, a present challenge right now, of course. Um, but you said uh, an interesting uh, sentence in a letter to your colleagues, and, I, and I'll quote you. You said, we will wear these moral scars for years to come. The time has changed. Or, the time has changed us all in ways that we don't yet understand. How, you're clearly being reflectively uh, philosophical. How if these things change the way you lead? Can that bleed down into the organization? Can you lead with this kind of wisdom as well? Of the many lessons we learned during COVID, and I could go on for days about what those are. Uh, the first one, in a good way that we worked so much together, we learned that we liked each other. We really worked hard uh, nights and weekends that, like, that people, we like each other. And that, that's not, that sounds trite, but it's really not for most places. Uh, the second thing is that the empathy and grace that you had to walk through the last two and a half years, you had to do that. And you had to extend it down into an organization for the immediate people I work with and for them to others that you continue to thank people, but also try to understand where they were, how tired they were, the difficulties they were going through, and you continue to have to talk about it in a good way, not in a way that you just did it because it was fair and important. 
And then the last part, the lesson we, we learned in a big way is that we can do things that we didn't think were possible. If we trust each other and follow a process, we can escalate, we can increase the things that we're doing in ways that we really had not anticipated before. But the trust in each other, the process that you go through to examine all the issues around whatever it might be, allow us to do things that we had not thought we could do before. But that for me, the biggest thing is the empathy and grace, and that's real that you talk about that with the people that you work with. Joe. Yeah, Dr. Burks, we increasingly understand that loneliness and social isolation is a determinant of health. We recently conducted a survey in North Carolina that found that one in three parents of young children describe themselves as lonely. What do providers and health systems need to be doing across both Carolinas to support more social connection, which we know is really vital to improving the health of the Carolinas? So from a big picture standpoint, our mental health as a society is different than it was two and a half years ago. It's way different than it was a decade ago. So our mental health as a group, but really personally, uh, plays a big part in our overall health. And people are increasingly talking about it, but like the example, North Carolina recently in some different surveys, business feedback was rated number one in business climate, but number 28 in health. And a big part of that is how we take care of the mental health of the people in North Carolina. So an increasing focus on that, not only personally, for us as we take care of others, but also what do we do as a system? What can we do as a state to make sure we're addressing the mental health needs of the people in North Carolina, particularly in children and adolescents? For an adolescent today who has a mental health issue, if they can go to the emergency department or to jail and wait, if they come to the emergency department, their wait before we find them a place globally, all of us across the state is almost three days in the emergency department, and that's really not acceptable. So we have to change how we're taking care of providing services for the mental health of the people in North Carolina. That has an impact on our overall health in a big way. Mm -hmm. Kevin. Well, Dr. Burr, um, Joe mentioned social determinants of health, and I often spend time with healthcare leaders talking about uh, social determinants of health, but more from an economic development perspective and that we can't make healthcare affordable enough for people who don't have a job or don't have benefits that can pay for healthcare. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm curious of how UNC Health is addressing um, how you ensure uh, inclusive supply chain so that we know that if there are diverse companies that we're engaging in healthcare, they tend to hire people who are diverse and then they come to you with the ability to pay for care. So just curious, how are you handling supplier diversity and supplier inclusion uh, within the system? And if you're seeing that with other hospital systems as well. So for, to Kevin, to go back to your original part of your question, the, the social determinants of health, big picture, are about 80% of what determines one person's health. So it is a really big deal. Uh, food security, housing, uh, work benefits, all those are a big part of, for all of us as a group, uh, what makes us healthy or not healthy. For us as a system, the recognition of that, to pay attention to it, to pay attention and how we take care of that person I talked about earlier, how we take care of each other, 
and then how we do our normal work. And we have a UNC Health Supplier Diversity Program that we started in 2021. And our goal in, by 2026 is to have about a little bit less than 10% of our non-labor spend with minority and women-owned businesses. So we're not where we need to be, but we're trying to make progress to make sure that we can get there. So we have over 15,000 active healthcare vendors. And if you do the numbers there pretty quickly, uh, then we can make differences in this program that we're doing. It's the right thing to do. And we're putting significant investment into getting there. Let me unpack this idea of certificate of need that's that's going on in the Carolinas. And, and, and we're going to lead to a Medicaid question, Medicaid funding question, Dr. Burks. In South Carolina, there's a real effort, at least I know in the Senate, in the General Assembly, uh, of doing away, completely away, with a certificate of need process for hospitals. In North Carolina, that seems to have be, uh, become a bottleneck for Phil Berger and the Senate as it comes, as it, as it presented with the idea that North Carolina may or may not now uh, accept Medicaid dollars, at least in this year. Where do you come down? How does the hospital come down? We know how the, how the hospital association comes down, but what, what are your thoughts? How do you reflect on this idea of certificate of need modification and how it, how it will end up characterizing what Medicaid acceptance in North Carolina would be? For us, the expansion of Medicaid is a really big deal to provide access in North Carolina for people beyond the hundreds of thousands that we could do with expanding Medicaid. Uh, that has primary importance for us. Certificate of need and how we best do that in the state. We have most people in North Carolina, like almost three and a half million people living in rural areas. That makes it a really different state than most. Uh, we have second to Texas only the most people live in rural areas. So the, the urban rural divide is very real here and the certificate of need, how it plays out in both of those is real. I think we have to have discussions about certificate of need and how it looks different than it does right now, because that is an important part of us having Medicaid expansion. So we're willing to sit down and talk about how it might look different going forward. Do you think that the um, the uh, inability of it possibly happening this year, which is looking less and less like it would, do you think it is just a matter of time? Would you expect it to happen? Medicaid expansion, that is? I, I still have some hope that it will happen this year. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is inevitable that it will happen at all. So that's why we're working hard uh, with all the different constituencies to help them understand how important it is for us to meet our mission, which is to promote the health and the well-being of the people of the state and the increased access that Medicaid expansion provides is such a huge deal. Mm -hmm. So I have not lost hope. I believe that we'll get there at some point, but it's not inevitable at all that we'll get there. Okay. Joe? Yeah, I just wanted to ask if you could also prognosticate a little bit about future of mergers and acquisitions in health systems across the Carolinas. We've seen a lot of activity, as Chris mentioned in the intro. Where is that going? Are hospitals just going to get, continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger? And how will they continue to focus on the health of the people of the Carolinas as they do? So the growth for healthcare systems has accelerated through the pandemic. It had started previously. My expectation it will continue, if not accelerated more. The finances of healthcare and being able to better meet that by that growth is such a big deal. For us as an academic healthcare system, our filter 
in thinking about how we might grow, the effect that it has on our academic health care practice or tertiary quaternary care, the effect on our population health, which is a big deal for us, the effect on education and what, where we can provide sites for training more students and residents that we talked about earlier, as well as the research that we can get research out to the people in North Carolina. So if we can do that better, particularly for the people of North Carolina and, and regionally, we'll continue to, to talk with people that we can partner with to do that. But big picture healthcare, I see that continuing, if not accelerating for the next several years. Mm -hmm. For us, that filter or those filters that we talked about, we continue to keep in mind though our primary mission, which are, which are the people of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin, we have literally about 90 seconds left. Last question. So uh, Dr. Burks, we see a lot more competitors now entering the healthcare space. Um, just curious how uh, traditional healthcare providers are responding or shifting their business models as new competitors enter, enter the healthcare industry. So we talked earlier about two people that we talk about a lot. One is the person we work with and the second one is the person we want to participate in their healthcare. Healthcare for decades has been built around a place, a hospital and a provider. In the future, healthcare has to be built around that person. So their experience, their access, virtually, however it might be, then that's where healthcare systems are going. And that's what we're trying to do. How do we build a new healthcare system for the future around that person and them allow us to participate with them in their healthcare? Okay, Dr. Burks, um, thank you for being on our program again. I hope you'll come back. And I hope next time when we look back on this appearance and this visit by you, that it's not quite as spectacular as it was from March 20 until now. <laughs> Um, but, but we hope you continue, uh, and best and thanks for your leadership at UNC Health. Thank you. It's good to talk to you all today. Thank, thank you. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the program. Please come back. Hope we didn't scare you off, and we hope you, be, you come back. Joe, If you have well. me, I'll be back. Okay, please. <laughs> uh, thank you for watching our program. If you have any questions or comments, carolinabusinessreview.org. You can watch programs, uh, share programs. Until next week, um, happy weekend, happy summer. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.